Let me pray real quickly before I start. Father, as we have just affirmed in what we've been singing, you are truly faithful. And I now ask that you would open our eyes to this text that we're about to look at, uh, that we would see clearly what you would have us learn from it, what it says and what you intend for it to mean for us today. Father, help me to speak clearly uh, that we would be impressed first and foremost with you and with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The evangelical American church has had a rough time of it over these last several years. If you were to count up all the people, all the Christians who were attending church three years ago, you would find that today only 60% of those Christians are still attending the same church. That means that four out of every 10 Bible, I'm sorry, four out of every 10 church attending Christians before the pandemic have now either changed churches or are no longer going to church at all. Now, there are good reasons to leave a church. Maybe you get a new job and it requires you to relocate. Maybe the church you're at gets new leadership and you discover that their teaching is now no longer faithful to good theological interpretation. But that does not fully explain what we have seen over the last several years. Something else has done great damage to the American church. And that is that we have been too quickly, we have been too quick to divide over issues that should not divide us. You've been around our church for a while. Chances are you've heard me talk about the four D's. The things that we die for, divide for, debate for, and discuss for. It's kind of a framework that we can use to evaluate various issues that we need to figure out how we're going to respond to either as individual Christians or as churches. The stuff in the die for category, these are the things that you have to believe in order to actually be Christians. These are core things like the divinity of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, fact that he is the way and the only way back to God. The divide for category are things where we agree that we're all Christians, but it's just not going to work for us to worship together, to do church together. These might be things like who and how we baptize people, or whether or not women can serve as elders or pastors in a church. If you think the Bible is clear about this and your church sees it otherwise, you probably need to find another church to worship at. Then the debate for categories, these would be things that we have strong feelings about and and are passionate about defending them or making our case for these things. But at the end, we're still committed to hugging it out afterwards and gathering and worshiping together. So this might be issues like, Uh, style of worship, 
of uh, different ministry philosophies within the church, or maybe issues like whether or not it's permissible for Christians to drink alcohol. And then there are the discuss for issues. These would be the things that we would have opinions, thoughts about, but we know that they're not terribly important. We're the first to admit that we could be wrong about them and that they don't really matter. Things like the best Bible translation to use in a worship service or what is the best night to have a church meeting on or how often we should have potlucks, things like that. Where things go awry, though, is when Christians or whole churches start putting the wrong things in the wrong categories. And this can create not just problems, but sometimes even disasters. And this morning, we're going to see a time that resulted in a near disaster for the nation of Israel when they did exactly this. We're in the midst of a series, uh, sermon series from the Old Testament book of Joshua. This is a book that tells us how the Israelites entered and then claimed the land of Canaan. A book that shows us how God was faithful to keeping one of the great promises that he had made to Abraham. The promise of a great homeland for his descendants. A book that God has designed to still speak to us today. And so this morning, we are going to see a time where, where the 12 tribes of Israel almost went to war against each other. We're going to learn how this happened. And we're going to discover how their near disaster can keep us from needlessly fighting and dividing today. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. And if you're using one of our red Bibles, we're on page 363, I think. Joshua chapter 22, page 363. Now, to this point in the book of Joshua, the conquest of the land has been completed. Canaanites, greatest strongholds, their most powerful kings, their biggest armies have all been defeated. And what still remains to be done, and there is still work to be done, but, this, but what remains to be done should be able to be handled by the individual tribes. And so this unified army of fighting men from all of the tribes is no longer needed. And so it's time to disband this army and send everyone home to the lands that have been allotted to them. And this, of course, includes the fighting men from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Now, you might remember from the very beginning of our series in Joshua that before the Israelites had even crossed over, into the, crossed over the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, these three tribes in particular had already claimed land on the east side of the Jordan River. Moses had allowed this, but it was on the understanding that the fighting men from these three tribes would still cross over the Jordan with the rest of the tribes and assist them in conquering the remaining, or the, conquering the land of Canaan. But now that the promised land has, in fact, been sufficiently conquered, it is time for Joshua to release these men from these three tribes 
and let them return to their lands that lie on the east side of the Jordan. So Joshua 22, starting in verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So here, Joshua commends the Gadites and the Reubenites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, for their faithfulness to the, uh, to the rest of the tribes. And as he sends them off, he reminds them of what is most important, that they remain true to Yahweh, their God, the Lord. They're to love him above all others, and they're to remain faithful to Yahweh, to, to the Lord, in, in uh, everything that they do. Verse 6. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, Joshua had given land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. So Manasseh gets land on both sides of the river. Then Joshua sent them home. He blessed them, saying, return to your homes with your great wealth with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing. And divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. And so the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan, which is their central place of worship, to return to Gilead, which is a reference to the land on the east side of the Jordan. Their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord, through Moses. So as they leave, Joshua blesses them, but he also reminds them of how much God has blessed them as well. And so by every appearance, everything is going fabulous at this point. God has fulfilled one of the great promises that he'd made to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would settle in this great homeland. All the tribes have worked together really, really well to this point under Joshua's leadership. And now each tribe is returning to their allotted lands with great wealth, precious metals, livestock, and clothing. And so if this was a movie, this is a, it's at this point that we would expect the credits to begin rolling because everybody, by all appearances, is going to live happily ever after, right? But not in this case. Because everything suddenly goes completely off the rails. As the Israelites find themselves getting ready to go to war again, this time with each other. Look at verse 10. It's amazing. When they, meaning the three eastern tribes, 
came to Gileath near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites, which means the other ten tribes, when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gileath near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Just make sure you understand what's happened here. When the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh are dismissed, they head east towards their land, towards the Jordan River. When they get to the bank of the Jordan River, before they cross over, they build an altar there, a large altar there. And then they cross over the river into their lands. When the other ten tribes hear that they have done this, they all begin gathering at Shiloh, which was their central place of worship, and they begin making plans to go to war against the eastern tribes. I mean, it's a, it's a shocking turn of events. This decision to build an altar on the banks of the Jordan has opened up a sudden and deep division amongst the Israelites. It's a divide so deep and so significant that they believe that at this point they might be justified in actually killing each other over it. Thankfully for us, meaning the American church, it hasn't come to this. But in recent years, we have seen sudden and deep divisions open up. Not over altars, but over politics and presidents. Over mask mandates and vaccines. Over responses to policing and racial justice concerns. Divisions so deep and so significant that it is killing churches as well as the gospel-driven unity that Jesus desires of us and actually died in order to make possible. So how did we get here? Actually, it's the same way that Israel did. And the text is going to tell us. Let's look at it. Now, before actual war breaks out amongst the Israelites... The western tribes send a delegation to the eastern tribes. Look at verse 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead. That's the land on the east. To Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. So this delegation includes Phineas, who's the son of the high priest, as well as leaders or representatives from each of the ten tribes. And their job was to go to those eastern tribes and confirm if what they had heard was true and then determine if war was now justified. Verse 15. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? 
How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. Are you, new, are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, then, then come over to the Lord's land where the tabernacle stands and share this land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, was not wrath or did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. So I'm going to get to the specifics in just a moment, but what I want you to see more than anything is the fear. Fear is what is driving all of their anger about this altar. Fear is what is propelling all of these people towards a violent conflict, even open war. Let me explain. When the ten tribes hear about the building of this very large altar on the banks of the Jordan River, they begin by assuming the very worst. They assume that this means that the eastern tribes have abandoned the Lord, have abandoned Yahweh. They assume that they've decided to start worshiping other gods. They basically assume that, that these eastern tribes have just abandoned their faith. At this moment, the ten western tribes cannot imagine any other way to understand what it is that they think they're seeing in front of them. But not only do they assume the worst, but that they are also very afraid of what this then means. They are fearful that they too are going to get caught up in God's judgment for this apparent idolatry. In fact, they bring up two previous situations when exactly this happened. The sin of Achan and the sin of Peor. Um, you probably remember, um, if you've been here for our series, uh, about Achan's sin, because it talks about it in Joshua chapter 7. At the battle for Jericho, God had told the Israelites to completely destroy everything in the city, to completely destroy the city, and not to keep anything for themselves from that city. But Achan decides to disobey because he just sees some stuff he can't pass by. And he, he actually uh, takes some gold and silver and clothing for himself. And as a result of this, as we see in Joshua 7, God withdraws his blessing from the entire nation. And they experience a stunning defeat in their next battle a battle that they should have easily won. The entire nation suffers, and 36 Israelites needlessly lose their lives because of what Achan has done. The sin of Peor that they refer to here is an event that isn't recorded in Joshua. It actually happens shortly before they cross the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. 
It's recorded actually in Numbers 25. While Israel, meaning everybody, all the tribes, were staying at Shittim, the men began, the men, the Israelite men, began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and they bowed down before these gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them all, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel, so the judgment will stop. And so Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, basically all those who've committed idolatry. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, same Phinehas, when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. And he drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. It's the same Phinehas that's part of this delegation that goes to the eastern tribes. If there was anyone that the Western tribes could trust would know how to handle idolatry, this is the guy. But I think we can understand why the Western ten tribes are afraid. Why they felt like they might need to go to war over what it is that they are hearing has happened. They saw this altar assumed the worst and feared what it was going to lead to. But see, here's the irony in this whole situation. It's not just the 10 Western tribes that are afraid. See, it turns out the Eastern tribes built this altar precisely because they are also afraid. We'll see why. When the Western delegation shows up in the East, the Eastern tribes begin by assuring the Western tribes that they, in fact, remain loyal to Yahweh. Look at verse 21. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, then do not spare us this day. 
If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, then may the Lord himself call us to account. So basically, the first things that the Eastern tribes say, they, they, they are emphatic that they remain steadfastly committed to Yahweh, despite what the Western tribes are assuming. They claim that this altar was not built for worship, but instead, this altar was built because of fear. Look at verse 24. This is the Eastern tribes continuing to talk. They say, no, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan River a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. And so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings, meaning at Shiloh, at this point anyway. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, then we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and to turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle at Shiloh. See, the eastern tribes, they feared that once they crossed over the Jordan River, that they might no longer be welcomed back into the promised land. They were afraid that they would be cut off from being allowed to worship the one true God, Yahweh, at the one true altar, which was located in Shiloh on the western side of the Jordan River. And they feared that if they were ever to be cut off from being able to go to Shiloh to worship, that it would eventually lead their children to begin worshiping other gods instead. And so in this fear, they build a replica of this altar, of the Shiloh altar, near where they would cross over the Jordan on their way to Shiloh. They wanted something that they could point to if in the future they were denied entry into the land. They wanted something that could be proof that they were still part of the Israelite community. And so they built this altar because they were afraid Afraid of what they might lose if they didn't build this altar. Verse 30. Then Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had said, had to say, and they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because we 
have not... Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. And now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. He's saying basically, Phineas says, you've rescued us because we almost shed your blood and that would have gotten us in trouble with the Lord because your blood would have been innocent had we done this. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. And they were glad to hear the report, and they praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. And so in the end, civil war is avoided because they took the time to check their assumptions and they talked before they divided. It's kind of a crazy story how things go from so good to so bad so very quickly. Fortunately, it all ended well. But this is a story that powerfully illustrates how fear often causes us to assume the worst of others and then leads us to act accordingly. The ten western tribes assumed that the eastern tribes had abandoned God and just lost their faith. And the eastern tribes assumed that the western tribes would reject them and eventually force them out of the community. They're so quick to fear, so quick to assume the very worst of each other. You know, we could look at it and think that it's almost comical if we hadn't experienced such a dose of this here in the American church over the last several years. And it's not over altars, but over politics and precedents over mask mandates and vaccines, over responses to policing and racial justice. So quickly and deeply, these issues divided us. Churches broke as each faction assumed the very worst of the other side. Each side angry over everything that they were hearing and seeing each side driven by fears of what it must mean about the others who seemed to disagree with them. Too often when we've heard something about others in the church, we've just automatically feared the worst. He voted for Trump must be a white nationalist. She thought Biden was the better option? I guess she's not even a Christian. He thinks mRNA vaccines are a good thing? Obviously, he lacks enough faith to trust that God can keep him healthy. She opposed state-mandated masking? How selfish. She obviously doesn't care about anybody but herself. 
He participated in a racial justice demonstration. Look at that. He's gone woke. Lost his faith. She thinks that we should support police officers? I wonder if she's a racist. Clearly, she doesn't understand the social implications of the gospel. You know you've heard people say these things. Maybe you've even thought some of these things. Anger. Accusations. Rejection. Division. All driven by fear. Fears that the church is becoming liberal. Fears that the evangelical church has been brainwashed by the Republican Party. Fears that every change must be an indictment of the past. Fears that any questioning of the status quo is a compromise to the gospel. Look, there are things in society, there are things in the church that we should be concerned about. But at the same time, we have to remember that not every altar is built for idolatry. There needs to be more open communication and good faith dialogue before we break off relationships and we allow our churches to be divided. You know, in the church, when we see something unexpected, when we hear something that we don't think we agree with, we need to start by checking our assumptions, which frankly are oftentimes shaped more by fear than by anything else. And then we need to do more talking and listening before we start fighting and dividing. This is what prevented civil war in Israel. Because Israel talked before they started fighting and dividing, both sides discovered that, you know what? The other side had legitimate concerns. Concerns that both sides discovered they could actually agree on. Again, there are truths that are worth dying for. There are issues that necessitate us dividing over. See, if that altar had been built for idolatry, then the outcome of this story would have been very different. But it turns out that it wasn't something worth dying over or dividing over. And the same thing holds true today. There are things which we need to put in that die for category, things that we should divide over. I'm talking about fundamental gospel truths. The divinity of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. The affirmation that he and only he is our way back to God. Those are among the things that we should divide over and put in that die for category. But my friends, politics and vaccines and concerns about how best to respond to racial justice are not Don't assume the worst. 
check first. Ask good faith questions. And then listen with an open mind to the answers. Be open to the possibility that there are other legitimate Christian perspectives on all of these issues. And more than anything, make sure that you truly understand their fears before you begin acting on your own. Shortly before Jesus, shortly before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he took time to pray for his disciples. Because what he knew that what they were about to experience was just going to turn their world upside down. Then, of course, what happened three days later turned their world upside down again. But Jesus didn't just pray for the disciples. Jesus also took the time to pray for us, meaning the church. And his prayer for the church was one of unity. He prayed that the church would not, nece- not needlessly fight and divide over issues of secondary importance. Here's what Jesus prayed to his father just hours before his arrest and crucifixion. Jesus speaking. My prayer is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. (laughs) That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus didn't die so that we could divide. Jesus died so that we can be unified. In fact, Jesus died because of the things that we have allowed ourselves to be divided over. Jesus died because of the things that we fear. Jesus had to die because of all the things that we are too quick to divide and fight about. And this is part of what is so beautiful about having Jesus' death memorialized at a table, like the one that's set here in the midst of us. See, a table that's been set with a meal is intended to be a place of fellowship. It's a place where relationships are supposed to be made and strengthened. It's a place where people are supposed to gather so that they can talk and so that they can listen to each other and so that they can truly become known to each other. And that means that at this table, which is Jesus' table, everyone is welcome. 
It doesn't matter your politics. It doesn't matter your vaccine status. It doesn't matter how you think about what the right response to racial justice concerns should be. Or any of the other things, that current issues that threaten to divide us. See, none of these things should keep you from this table or from participating in this church. The only thing that matters at this table is that you love Jesus and that you want to follow him as your true rescuer king. The bread that you see there on the table, that bread represents his body, which was broken for us. It was broken so that we can, in fact, be brought together, not as strangers, not even just as friends, but that we can be brought together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as sinners who've been made into sons and daughters of the Most High God. The cup, it represents his blood, which was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins, including all the times that we have thought less of each other than we should have, and all those times where we have allowed things to needlessly divide us. This morning, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together, but we're going to do things a little bit differently. Instead of bringing it to you, I'm going to invite you to come to the table. I'm going to invite the worship team to come first, though, so that they can... um, lead us in a song, because even as we come and share this meal together, we're also going to take the time to bless each other by singing a blessing to each other as we share this table together. I invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for you the prayer that Jesus prayed for all of us. Holy Father, make us one, just as you are with the Son and the Son is with you. May we be in you and in Jesus so that the world may believe that you sent Jesus to become one of us. You have given us your glory that we might be one as you are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that you would bring us to greater and greater unity so that the world will know that you sent Jesus and that you love all who follow him just as you love him. We pray this prayer of Jesus in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we've gathered to worship God this morning. You are dismissed.